Hello and welcome to Blight, stories in the key of decay and repair. I am Sean Williamson. Last summer, an old friend died. From what I heard, Adam suffered a break, and after a long search, his body was found in the water. Besides that, I don't have anything useful to say about how he died. He was a good kid, funny and wild and generous. He was always at the party. He was always at the FTT shows, the band I was in from 2000 to 2010. And after it happened, one of my old bandmates, Tyler, recalled that Adam was the first person that bought our CD. Tyler said, he just came up to me and gave me five bucks and I thought, oh man, we can actually sell these things? After Adam died, his sister Jenny set up a memorial show in Whitewater. I stepped in for a couple songs during Nick T's set at the beginning. The show was at the Fuzzy Pig, which is an antique store, pizza place, event space, haunted house, right outside of town, but also in the middle of nowhere, Walworth County. Or it would seem like the middle of nowhere if you'd never been. It's the kind of place that if you describe to someone, they wouldn't believe you. My sister waited tables there as a kid. You go a little further down that road, take a left and a right. There's a well where you can stop on a hot summer day for a drink. It's always flowing. Water bleeds in the southeast, where the sky bangs big days after the storm. I've talked and smoked and drank beers and kissed at that well, and life didn't feel boring, and I'll tell those stories over and over. I'll relive it every day. We're together, but we're not, you know. It was a beautiful night, perfect like a piano pushed into a ravine. A lot of people showed up that I hadn't seen in 15 years or more. There were new children, babies that I didn't even know existed. Joey was there, upside down cross tattooed next to his eye and a beard, and his sister just died, and I knew her too, but had not gone to the funeral. The mom died not long before, which I only learned about because of the sister. Help me, he says. He was a baby once. We'd drive a hundred miles an hour down Young Road, get high in the basement and play Godspeed. He slept on my Fratney Street couch in 2011 until we almost killed him by forcing him off whiskey, convulsing in seizure in the back seat of Tom's car. It isn't guilt exactly, helplessness in your old self, watching you chase the dog through the woods in the winter, but you can't catch it and it's getting dark. It wasn't all that. It isn't even much of that. We're older and softer mostly, sharing parliaments, communion, not hot or cold, the air on our skin laying down breathless, black kittens dashing in and out of the jagged rusted hole in the side of the casket. I'd stand there forever. We'd forget all the times we could have done better, together but not together. A bunch of friends work for another friend's real estate business left to him by his dad, whose house I got drunk at and puked for the very first time on my birthday in 2001. The older sister was friends with a cop in training who was there and gave me water and patted my back. We're together, but we're not. I'm not. I love them, but I don't know them anymore and every year could zip by like a bird under the wire, and we'd be sorry when we lost someone, but for great stretches, forget. 
We share parliaments and watch the bands and drink. Some of us were sober and some of us had died. Life is a fucking grab bag eulogy. Embarrassments, addiction, arrogance, triumphs, generosity, indecency, decency. I don't think that's uncommon or special. Nick T told me way last year how one of our old classmates had been charged with writing bad checks in Janesville. This girl had a low self-esteem. Even her friends were cruel to her, which I hadn't heard told that way until later. Another friend, the friend of the girl who wrote the bad checks, died in a car crash on 59 the summer after my grade graduated. I was living on the long end of Franklin Street by the quarry where people turned up dead sometimes. Nobody was out there unless I invited them. The inky shadows of leaves danced in the streetlights. We listened to Arcade Fire and smoked a blunt on the way to Memorial Hospital to watch the light be dimmed to off. On the retail, this story could resemble embarrassment, but the only thing that's actually embarrassing is acting better than it. We had a benefit concert and didn't raise much. We all ate ecstasy in a cornfield that night, and I called another girl I knew from the passenger seat of my friend Devin's pickup truck. We had dated a little bit, and I told her I was sorry for how things worked out. This is a lottery, we said at the same time into the phone. It's confusing and hopeless. We're losing. Tick, 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 and still so lucky. After a roundtable shit talk about when we all worked at the university dining hall, most of our first jobs, where we stole and smoked cap tranquilizers, where Ian was actually a manager, but I had forgotten. We went to the brass rail, and I retold the story about how I was on a bender, and I crashed into Adam's house on the way east, east side on a cold night, and the next day, we all went to the ground round for happy hour. Two for one, mixers, $5 apps, and free popcorn. And then we drank whipped cream vodka and root beers and drove to the Vegas club on Valentine's Day night where Adam had titties slapped on either side of his head. This is what we want to talk about. You can leave at any time. This is what we want to talk about because that part is over. The next part will end soon. Then the next part after that. And maybe we haven't gotten what we've wanted and maybe we're starving Our recollections and anecdotes mutating forever are the world. Our failing memories are the world. And I drove home after the show and after the bar and thought, as I often do, about what would happen if somewhere God snapped his fucking fingers and I didn't know what I was or what driving was, if I became unmoored, my attachments to the world disappearing, my MFA and sick curiosity and Twitter literary beefs disappearing, garage rock disappearing, film fest juries, book awards, double follow-up ghosted emails and appealing to the uninteresting, uninterested art rich, my secrets, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, sucked out the window somewhere on 20 between LaGrange and East Troy leading right up to the freeway. New York City and Los Angeles and Whitewater are not the world. What wrenched us from these places, 
who ruined that chance for us or lost that job for us, resentments for the ones that don't deserve it, blaming the infinity mere hall, blood pouring from our mouths, and the only way to free it is to need it, an excuse to get our hearts cheating. Our shows and our books and our records and the threat of nuclear holocaust, our perceptions of our kids and our judgment of our friends and our histories and what we don't know and our heartbreaks watching that boat come unhooked. Not Bayview or Bushwick or Silver Lake or Pilsen or Anchorage. Dime Square is not the world. Hobart Gate is not the world, but instead fast food gems to keep me hunched over my phone, breathing heavy, heaving, choking, unbroken, then broken. All a future dead plain, the breeze blowing lonely hot ash over the space where our church bells banged. Not our hometowns crumbling or our South American motorcycle trips or our prison sentences, the gut rot from 25 years of drinking, the blood in our shit after a whole night of laughing, the sun in our eyes refracted through the spiked windshield not fixed for lack of $500 that we'd already spent chasing that dog still missing and distant. This is not the world. If we don't write these stories, we don't exist. If we don't make records, we don't exist. If we can't admit that smallness, we'll be buried with it. If I can't say this, I don't exist. And the looming shadow breeze watching me from the foot of my bed instead. On one hand, it doesn't matter. Even if we all want the same things, because we end up old and ugly and pathetic, eventually losing our juices, then being driven places and not listened to. Being anything less than bitter and crisp, contempt is not the world. Contempt is. And so, on the other hand, you could appreciate what you've got and not need some hideous tragedy to remind you of that, like a classmate's wife getting hit by a car on New Year's, to dig up the difference between putting your fist through the drywall in silence. Everything about it makes you want to run makes you want to hide and build a fortress from the million cuts lurking, or it makes you want to live after rushed waking, after spending whole nights wrestling nightmares of burning. Not to abandon the responsibility, but to abandon the pain of not knowing. Friends still alive, and what they aren't doing, and how they are hurting, and how they're alone just like you in the morning. I exit on Howard and take the way back home, where the big sign tells me I'm not speeding. I've made it just far enough to haul the disappointment symphony, the last note slow ringing. Last year, crying on the Hudson line in New York as you passed the castle in the water because your old friend had a seizure and died in his sleep, this is the cycle now, and we can only have our hands threshed off if we try to stop the machine from whirring. Crying in the sunset, because you'll eventually not see anyone, because dying is scary. Keep that warm terror in a vial on a necklace. Laying in bed, brushing your son's hair off his face, these moments will be disappeared. These moments are yours, but not there, in the afterlife pre-dawn whisper of autumn. This isn't the world, but a library of love that is breathing and rotten. 
Today's program features work by my... Oh. Today's work... <laughs> Today's program features work by two artists from the same area of southeastern Wisconsin where I grew up. They are both works by people until recently I hadn't seen much of but always kept in touch with. Dan was undeniably my teenage band's biggest fan and grew up a couple towns over. Ian is a year younger than me and we went to school together and while saying this would surely make him blush, I always thought of him as a kid who got it musically uh, and was special in that way. Dan Vierk is a husband, father, and bartender raised in southern Wisconsin, currently living in North Mankato, Minnesota. A self-identifying delusional, he's pretty sure modern popular country music is a cultural war crime. Dan is also a repeat performer on Blight. Here's Dan. The Other Dan, Part 1 my mom says she named me Daniel because it's a good Irish name, but our Irish lineage is tenuous at best. She also said, well, it's a good Bible name, but when I was five, her dad died, and not only did she stop teaching Sunday school, but we stopped going to church altogether. I grew up in a 6,000-person southern Wisconsin town. My mom is not a gossip, but I think like a lot of moms, on the phone, she'll tell me who she ran into at the store and how they're doing, what they're doing, how their kids are doing, their horses, whatever. One day she called me to tell me that a former classmate of mine shot his parents to death while they were sleeping, burnt the family house down, and was on life support due to fire-related injuries. The sole surviving member of that immediate family would take him off life support shortly thereafter. That classmate's name was also Daniel. We had one class together, and when my mom called to tell me what the other Dan had done, I'd already read about it online. Neither of us said anything for a minute, and me, I try to make jokes in awkward situations, so I said, well, no one could say they didn't see something like that coming, and she agreed. Part 2 when I was in grade school, I bullied other kids. I made fun of them for things that were outside their control, their long-last names, the cleanliness of their clothes, their speech impediments, and or their weight. At around 9 or 10, I started karate, and there was the stipulation that if the chief instructor got word you were misbehaving at school, you could be suspended from karate classes. This is something that my dad would threaten at any opportunity. He knew, better than even I at that point, how much these classes meant to me. So, detentions, low grades, not doing my chores, he'd say, well, maybe you'd have more time for this and that if we pulled you out of karate. Granted, he also knew how much the classes cost, but I would start crying immediately every time he brought it up, so you could say it was an effective strategy. I did uh, cut out the bullying. Uh, at, well, at least I stopped picking fights. Part 3. As far as academics, I was always hit and miss. In elementary school, I was in the advanced reading group of the remedial math group. Toward middle school, my reputation as a bright student with promise, but a bad attitude preceded me. At home, staring down the barrel of another algebra worksheet, I was with increasing frequency breaking pencils in half and just slamming my head on the desk. 
I was at a loss for how math could be exponentially, mercilessly incomprehensible. I'd sit and stew in a sustained panic, sweating and shoulder-checked by my inarguable limitations, with no option but to accept my fate as a hopeless imbecile. I did like art, though. I liked it so much that between 4th and 5th grade I took a watercolor class from a community group, not because I liked watercolors, but because I was willing to take what I could get. Our school district uh, had an art teacher that taught at the middle school and at the high school. In 8th grade, she told me I wasn't allowed to paint a replica of a Red Hot Chili Peppers album because they, quote, are from hell, end quote. In ninth grade art with the same teacher, I got bored and I wrapped my wrists and ankles in masking tape like a superhero. The teacher took this opportunity to introduce me to the only 11th and 12th grade art teacher in the district who also scolded me, and the two teachers sent me to the office with the tape still on so the assistant principal could see for herself just what I had done. The advice from the assistant principal was to do my best to avoid the art teacher's. I had to beg to take an art elective my senior year because I'd done so poorly on the tests in the 11th grade art class. I found out later that the class I was in was the only class where that teacher gave tests. Something that didn't bother me at the time but bothers me now that it didn't bother me then is that at the end of every project, the junior-senior teacher would do evaluations in front of the class, which is pretty standard for art classes. But whatever I had turned in was always explained as exactly what we weren't supposed to do with that project. Now, I was happy with what I had made, and the art teacher and I were supposed to be enemies, so at the time, I mean, it made sense. Part 4 The one class I had with the other Dan was a computer class my sophomore year. I remember that teacher had just moved to Wisconsin from outside Denver, Colorado, and she said she enjoyed hiking and mountain biking, which I remember because she did not look athletic. I sat next to the other Dan, well, with an empty spot between us. He had restraining orders against him because he would mouth at or whisper to girls. He dressed exclusively in black, except some of his clothes had faded to gray. His posture was vulture-like, his neck stuck straight out from between his shoulders and then curved up abruptly. He talked in a sneer, and he recommended metal bands to me like KMFDM, Typo Negative, and Cannibal Corpse. I remember he called Marilyn Manson pussy shit. I'm sure I checked out at least one KMFDM CD from the library, but I didn't get it. Yeah, it didn't click. It was unrelenting, accelerating darkness, as opposed to my favorite band, Nirvana, and their kind of tumbleweed of frustration and melody. The other Dan was on the fringe of student traffic. His classes were mostly in one hallway or maybe in a different building, and he had half days sometimes, so... I mean, I never really had the opportunity or cause to talk to him outside of that one class, if even then. Now, I know he was angry because he used all of the words you weren't supposed to use. He'd sneer something quietly, and I'd say, what? Because I couldn't hear him, and then, you know, I'd wish I hadn't asked. Other people just avoided him. But I wasn't going to avoid him just because everyone else did. Just because they, they with a capital T, I wasn't going to write him off for his otherness because to them, them with a capital T, I was also an other. 
he had one friend from his classes, his classes for people with emotional needs or whatever terms they had back then for that kind of thing. That friend was the brother of an older girl who was also in karate, but she did the adult classes, so we didn't see each other very often, and she was into art, and she knew I was into art, and one time she pulled me aside and told me I didn't always have to draw eyebrows on faces, and I remember it was like nice to get that constructive feedback. I know that she didn't like her brother being friends with the other Dan. Now, our whole town talked about the other Dan, even before he shot his parents and burned his house down, and even before the restraining orders, because his older brother had died before either of us were even in school. What happened is back when TVs were as deep as they were wide, he, Dan's brother, was asked to get one from the AV closet. Coming back to the classroom, the TV fell off the cart and killed him. The story went that that's why TVs had to be strapped down, that's why carts had to be redesigned, and that's why kids weren't allowed to get the TVs anymore. Not only that, but this was the early 80s and Mark Hamill, a distant relative of the family, came to our 6,000-person town for Dan's brother's funeral. So, the other Dan had always been part of the conversation. Part 5 I got in trouble in that computer class. We were supposed to copy word for word from our two calm, vertically flipping, ring-bound textbook, and I gave up. I couldn't. There was no end to the ways I could miss a sentence, use the wrong word, lose my place, or add a comma where there should have been one, but wasn't one. So instead, I threw in filler text. There's no way she's going to check every sentence and every assignment, right? So what was on the tips of my fingers? Ah, yes, the plot of Green Jelly's music video for their song, Three Little Pigs. It's the same story you remember about the straw house and the stick house and the brick house, except at the end of the music video, the third pig hires Rambo to shoot the wolf to pieces with a Gatling gun. This is the only time my mom and dad had to accompany me after school to meet with the principal, vice principal, police liaison, and the computer class teacher. I did not know what the meeting was about. I thought they were upset because I'd been using the class time to design and print CD art for the mixes I was making with songs I downloaded from Napster. But that's right, this teacher was from Colorado, and this was right after Columbine, so that's what the meeting was about. Sitting in that little conference room uh, after school with my parents and the administration, I told everybody I didn't realize what I wrote could be taken that way. And they accepted my apology. They believed I was as thoughtless as I said I was. And I'm telling you, I really was that thoughtless. It was completely unintentional. I would not do that. I mean, sure. I openly railed against how my classmates dressed, how they talked, the music they listened to, what they did after school, their values, if teenagers even have values. And sure, I read and reread Punisher comics, and I rewatched Phantom of the Opera every Friday night in my basement, drinking room temperature cokes and eating the three meat salad from Fasoli's. And yes, I taped signs to my locker that said things like, books, not balls, but I would never, you know? I didn't even play Doom that much, and I didn't listen to Metallica. I listened to Nirvana. I listened to music about suicide, not murder. What our school did about Columbine uh, is that we had something called step groups, S-T-E-P-P groups. I don't remember what the acronym was 
Before, but my advisor was the lady gym teacher, and in one session we were supposed to imagine what we'd do in some confrontational situation, and I asked a question that was probably a little sarcastic, and the advisor responded saying, just write what they want you to write. And I said, isn't that exactly what we're not supposed to do? And another student agreed with me. The step group advisor responded to everyone in the group that, quote, No, Dan is just being a smartass, and that's all he'll ever be. It's the only way he can get attention because he doesn't have anything valuable to contribute, and he never will. End quote. I wrote on my confrontational situations worksheet what my advisor had said to me about me to the whole group, and I turned it straight into the office, but I never heard another thing about it, and I guess I was naive to think I would hear anything. I graduated high school, but as a conscientious objector to nearly everything they had offered me. Part 6 I believed people when they told me college would be different, and maybe in part because I decided it would be, it was. At this college in a 12,000-person southern Minnesota town, just twice the size of the town I grew up in, a lot of the other kids had jobs waiting for them at the end of their perfunctory degree in Who Gives a Shit. They were spouse shopping with little to no pretending that they weren't, and that wasn't very different from my high school. But for my first writing workshop, Professor Judy Wilson arrived late because damn if she was going to wait for any of us, and having arrived, she dropped her stack of books on the table with some violence and announced, quote, I'll bet not one of you can string a single decent sentence together, much less a paragraph, much less an entire story. End quote. As if to say, if you care about what you're doing, I will also care. And even if that axiom had been true in high school, even if that wasn't different, at least now I'd have to re-earn being written off. No one had pulled her aside before I got there, and no one had told her not to waste her time on me. And so this was my clean slate. We read John Gardner's Fire and Brimstone craft book about how important it is to create an uninterrupted fictional dream. Be clear. Be concrete. Be consistent. Be absolute. This guy was as famous as an author could be, mostly for his blustery declarations. In college, I embarrassed myself over and over and over again, always the same way. Falling in love with person after person, idea after an idea. Who could I emulate? Who could I be? What could I stand for? What could I exemplify? Once... I made a mix CD for a music professor with a defaced portrait of Ronald Reagan on the cover, and he started a class by having me tell him which song I should play for the whole class, and we listened to it, and then he nodded and started class, and he put the CD away for, I'm sure, forever. That kind of thing happened again and again and again. Charles Schultz and Peanuts taught me that is called unrequited. It's the word for that kind of thing. And then in graduate school, because of course, graduate school, I read a novella by John Gardner that seemingly broke all of the written-in-stone rules from his own craft book. So I wrote my thesis on reconciling the two texts. The novella ends, spoiler alert, with the main character, quote, bellowing for no more illusions, no more grand gestures, end quote. 
Ironic as it may be, the phrase has become a wellspring of epiphanies for me. No more promises, no more heroes, no more obsessive loves, no more resolutions, no more answers, no conclusions, no role models, no declarations, because having ideas is no way to live. Years and years and years have passed, and I have been fortunate enough to tumble out the other side of my mistakes and into the next, just licking my wounds and learning how to better tumble as I go. It pains my ego to concede this current inescapable truth that I am objectively squarely in the middle of the pack. Broadly and accurately, I am definitively ordinary, and I wonder, was I always headed here? Was the other Dan really always going to do something like that? I am grateful that these days there's less and less time for that kind of wondering. I am grateful that there are fewer and fewer ideas possessing me, and I am possessed by fewer and less intoxicating delusions. I have, like a lost adult soul stepping into a shallow spring with some berobed clergy, reconciled myself begrudgingly to the momentum of life licking my wounds, learning to tumble, allowing for accepting and appreciating discernible progress. Part 7 I stopped doing any kind of karate when I left high school, but the summer before I went to college I was there easily 30 hours a week. I'd gone from leading by example at the front of class as a lower-ranked belt to ultimately earning a third-degree black belt and becoming a full-on paid instructor. The other instructors, assistant instructors and leadership students would come in two or three days a week, but I was there however many days it was open, plus I was there for the once-a-month leadership team meetings. At one meeting, the chief instructor brought up the behavior of a certain student. We were getting reports from this kid's school, which we never got reports from a student's actual school, but this time we did. The school said he was increasingly disruptive and uncooperative. And as far as our classes, he'd have good days and bad days. His mom usually brought him to classes except when she was crossing state lines on a bender with a new boyfriend because, hey, sometimes she was. When she didn't bring him, his grandparents would. And this kid's grandpa, he was just a cartoon of an old biker, thin and sharp as a switchblade with wiry, curly white hair bristling out from under his leather cap with the little metal piece in the front. This guy, he clearly predated helmets by decades and had survived. We uh, had a potluck one time and he brought a, from scratch, handmade butterscotch pie. Tips of the cream torched and, and everything. It was sophisticated, it was deliberate, it was elegant, it was a gift to the extent of his abilities. At this meeting, all dozen of our mouths full of subway foot-long sun chips and fountain soda, the chief instructor floated the idea of barring the student from our classes because of his behavior at school. Before I knew it, I had raised my hand, and when he called on me, I said, Maybe the way he's behaving just means that right now he needs us more than ever.
Thanks for listening. As always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Check out the merchandise on our website. We have t-shirts. Playing us out today is Ian Salman. Ian and I have been working on our live show and a series of stories and songs that in part honor the people we have known, loved, and lost in Walworth County. Here is Rust. Rest on the lawn, picking myself up in between songs. Yellow rose thorns sticking out, picking rocks on the farm. Dark blue denim covering the sky. Time to say goodbye Dust covering the modeling Wondering if we'll ever see her again Sitting by my bedside